And I would also invite you to turn with me in your Bibles uh, to the book of Luke, chapter 2. We are, in some ways, pleasantly saturated with Luke 2 this weekend. It was really an enjoyable experience to hear the dramatic presentation on Friday evening of key points in this text. Now I get the pleasure of taking you and thinking theologically and also applicationally through Luke 2 this morning. And so, really looking forward to uh, this text. As I've been walking through Advent season, we started with the, the announcement to Zechariah that his wife would conceive, and we considered the natural processes in which God superimposed and made older folks be able to to conceive. But then we also saw the super uh, miraculous event of a virgin conceiving outside of the normal parameters and to demonstrate that with God nothing shall be impossible. Uh, We have also engaged with the songs that Mary sang and also Zacharias as well. And so, coming off of that, we're, we're going to be looking at Luke 2 and noticing some of the themes of humility that, that carry over, really, from Mary's song and, and flow right into the, the significant features of the birth story here in Luke 2. And Luke is the narrator, so it's not um, by accident that he would see association of these truths and wed the story together for us in this way. Um, Luke 2, I've already uh, read the scriptures for us uh, at various points in the service, so there's really no need to do that. Um, I will tell you, though, there was a Sunday school teacher who asked her class who decreed all that the world should be taxed. And the little boy piped up and answered, the Democrats. <laughs> uh, the King James Version of the Bible reminds us the intent of the registration decreed by Caesar Augustus. A registration of any kind is designed to track, it is designed to tax, it is designed to regulate, and in some cases to confiscate. Who was this Caesar Augustus? Well, he was the nephew of Julius Caesar. Augustus rose to power when a conspiracy of Roman senators got anxious and fearful that Caesar might put himself forward as an uncontested dictator over the Roman Empire. And so they assassinated Caesar. And their fear actually, ironically, set up a series of destabilizing events in the Roman Empire and civil wars occurred, and ironically, the nephew of Caesar, in the end, became the very first dictator over the Roman Empire. Is that irony? Is that fate? What is it? Did not Mary sing in her song, The Magnificat, that the Lord scatters the proud in their hearts. Well, she did. In fact, she also said that the Lord brings down the mighty from their thrones. 
Caesar's Augustus, Caesar Augustus's decree that all the world should be taxed must be viewed from the vantage point of the throne room of heaven. God's decrees operate concurrently with the events that we see unfolding all around us. God's decrees overshadow the decrees of men. So who decreed that all the world should be taxed? Was it Caesar or was it God? And the answer is yes. And the wheels of time turn, they're not by chance, they're not by fate, but they're operating underneath and under the observation of the decrees of God. We're not entitled at any time to really know how the future is going to completely unfold. However, we can sense that at the hand of the wheel is God's directive plan. So when the Lord brings down the mighty from the thrones, He is about to elevate and exalt the humble of His state. And when the status quo is upended, people all around get very anxious. People, when they see things out of the norm, begin to become a little bit more humble in their outlook. I don't know if you've noticed, but this world is changing very fast. Prior to COVID, we could generally trust common sense to prevail. I've uh, met countless people who recognize that this is not Kansas anymore. Things are not the way it were, was just even a, maybe five and ten years ago. It just seems as though common sense has been upended. Even the Catholic Church cannot even be counted upon as an institution to properly confess marriage as the Bible even says. I know I've been hard on Andy Stanley in times past, but to be honest, the Catholic Church is doing a lot of the same things. It's really remarkable, though, that when common sense fails, when common sense fails among the powerful, the people we would expect to be able to use reason, it's then that the common people become much more sensitive to the things of God. The things of God are not impressive to proud people. And when we are filled with pride, we can lose our common sense. Yet those who are sensitive to what's going on around them will discover that the news of a Savior born in Bethlehem is going to be deeply satisfying to them. And the birth of Jesus tells us that God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble. This is the language of heaven that Mary knew by heart. And if your world has been upturned and upset by the rulers of this earthly world, then I want to encourage you to turn your eyes upon Jesus, to look at Him, learn the language of heaven in the birth of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at a couple of scenes as this story unfolds, and in each scene there are glimpses of the humility that is demonstrated in the 
exalted person of the Son of God descending and taking upon himself the form of a baby. And so as we look at this, don't just get caught up with the sentimental of the baby. Allow your heart to be taken with the humility that is on display. We're going to look at verses 6 to 7 as we begin the successive pieces of the story, and we see first uh, a maternity ward with live animals. Some maternity wards are decorated with pictures of baby animals and all kinds of cuteness. Christ's maternity ward had live animals. And we know this to be the case because there is a reference to a manger. Ironically, we associate that with a stable, but there's no stable actually mentioned. We infer from the manger that this, there was a place that they were located where there was animals being kept. And the feed trough is what a manger is, indicates that this is probably a courtyard, a courtyard. Some of the older church fathers have suggested that the courtyard was perhaps even really a cave, a place where, in it, whether it's a cave or a courtyard, there would have been litter, there would have been closeness, there would have been unpleasant smells of crowded animals, unwholesome intrusions of the dogs that would just be freely moving and running. I can picture those dogs because when Abby and I, in 2015, were in Ethiopia, in the evening, in Ethiopia, it was so loud, it was, it was louder at night than it was in the day. Because in the noise of the evening, you could hear the, bar the barking of the dogs and the growling and the ripping of, 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 of flesh and the fighting that was going on. It would not have been a pleasant experience to actually have given birth in the courtyard. But nevertheless, the time had come to be born. Verse 6 tells us, verse 6 says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. When it's time to be born, it's time to be born. Right, Hoffmans? We'll tell you that story later. There's no stopping it. And the scripture says that she gave birth, it says, to her firstborn son. A lot of firsts occur with a firstborn. There's a lot of joy as you're learning how to parent for the first time, you're learning a lot about it all, and then all of a sudden you forget and you start over again when you have another one. This is natural, but with the birth of Jesus, his place as firstborn has an even more significant place. It's natural, as I said, to have a lot of firsts with a firstborn, but with this designation of him being the firstborn, it carries with it a lot of painful memories of Egypt. Egypt experienced a great loss because they were holding captive God's son, Israel. 
Egypt experienced the cost of their firstborn because of the obstinacy of Pharaoh. And the cost of Pharaoh's pride was the loss of many children in that nation. It was a great cost of life in exchange for the redemption of God's firstborn Israel. And this designation of Jesus being the firstborn is not by accident, because in the law of Moses, God required Israel to set apart to the Lord the firstborn that opens the womb. God instructed the people of Israel to, to redeem with financial means an offering to the temple as a reminder of the greater cost that was done to bring about their liberty and to release them from Egypt. Joseph himself, as father, was required to redeem his firstborn son. Again, Jesus is set apart unto the Lord as a price of a redemption which is even greater than we could even imagine. But there is a time to be born, but in verse 7, there's also indication in the way Luke talks about putting him into the manger that there will be a time to die. Verse 7 uh, says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Swaddling cloths. I think it's kind of morbid to talk about one's death on the day of their birth, is it not? But yet, Luke is presenting to us that it was, yes, ordinary to swaddle your child. It was, it was designed actually to stimulate or, excuse me, simulate the, 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 the womb. And in those days, they thought that if you bound the, 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 the um, limbs, that they would then perhaps even grow straighter and not bow. And... Uh, that's how they thought, and, and many preachers through the years have noticed remarkably that Jesus' entrance and his exit are very similar. He was wrapped when he left this earth with fine strips of linen. Here, he's wrapped with whatever they could find. He's wrapped with swaddling clothes, cloths, excuse me. And that word literally comes from a word that means to rend or to tear. Like old cloth, we don't often throw away cloth in our home when children have destroyed their clothes over time. We use them for rags, and they rip so easily when you pull that cotton shirt and you just rip. I enjoy that. It gives me such internal pleasure. I don't know what that says about me. But like old cloths that were gathered, that were ripped and frayed and not perfect and not pretty, he was wrapped tightly and swaddled. Common decency would not have let a child, a, a woman that is, labor in such a situation. But for the Son of God, there is no common decency in His entrance nor in His exit. In His crucifixion, He was hung between two thieves for crimes that He never committed. Matthew Henry, beloved Puritan commentator on scriptures, said this. He said, Christ was born 
in an inn to signify that he came into the world but to sojourn here for a while as an inn and to teach us to do likewise. An inn receives all comers and so does Christ. He hangs out his banner of love for his sign and whoever comes to him, he will in no wise cast out. Only unlike other inns, he welcomes those who that come without money or without price. All are free to come. Matthew Henry hit that right on the mark. In Jesus' inn that's displayed, the banner is open. We're open for business. The cross is his sign. And all are welcome to come and to spend uh, their whole entire life with him. There is a beauty in all of these symbols. But we want to notice, too, in the birth, there are some instances of humility here. In the birth, there is an announcement that's actually designed for social media. If there ever was an announcement designed for social media, this was it. It would have gone viral. But it's the simplicity that makes it so wonderful. There is something very wonderful when people of high stature forget their rank and they forget even like who they are. A few years ago, before Queen Elizabeth died, she was walking on the edge of her country estate and sometimes the path would wander onto public grounds and as she was walking through with her security staff, they were not dressed with police uniform, they were kind of undercover. And uh, as she was walking with her beloved dogs, a tourist from America saw them and fell into them, uh, fell in with them as they were walking. And uh, he talked about, the tourist talked about how lovely it would be to, to meet the queen. And he asked whether they thought that they would meet her and then he went and asked whether or not she had met the queen. And she replied that she had. And so excited with this realization that someone that he was walking with had met the queen, he asked the bodyguard if he might take their picture together. And after the gentleman had left, the queen said to her guardsman, you know, I'd like to be a fly on the wall. And when he gets home and someone points out to him that the woman who's standing with him is the queen. And I say this is what makes the birth of Jesus Christ so wonderful. The Son of God did not come out of any sense of regret. He came willingly, he humbled himself, and he took upon him the form of a servant. He took upon himself the form of a baby. A baby. New moms don't like to pass their baby around. Think about the Son of God wrapped in human flesh. How vulnerable that is. Well, this announcement, as beautiful as it is, it came to a few shepherds. Verses 8 and 9 describe the glory of that moment. In verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord showed around them, and they were filled with great fear. 
the eternal God speaks to but a few shepherds. Care of sheep requires a lot of fitness. You've got to be fierce. You've got to be focused. It's not for the faint of heart. Flocks were usually not uh, kept in pens, but they were being led out into the countryside. Shepherds then in turn were often aloof from society, and they had to defend and guard their master's flocks. This required them at times to have to go to extreme length to, like, fight for water rights and grazing areas. They had to be aggressive and defend. They were rough and tumble. These guys were bushwhackers. They were hunting, trapping, black coffee guys. They were no lattes, no nonsense guys. These guys were given a remarkable gift to announce to these strong men that a Savior would be born in the line of the great shepherd king, the son of David. Did it strike them perhaps unique that they themselves being shepherds are hearing the same message? But yet there was a concealment in this announcement, verses 10 to 14 revealed to us. The angels said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You shall find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is not an announcement that takes place in the streets of Jerusalem. It's in an off and a more concealed location. And this singular angel appears to them, and they were terrified at the vision, and they were told not to fear. Fear was a very legitimate response before such powerful creatures. It's not as though God the Father said, you know, we've got to do a little more than just have one angel here announce my son. It's almost as if God the Father said, this is, this is, this is one, one, we need more angels to come out of like, we need a chorus of angels to come out and des describe this announcement. And as that announcement of names are given, he's given names that outpace those of Caesar. He is called a Savior. He is called Christ. He is called the Lord. Amazing statements about this little baby that they will find in a manger. There were many saviors in that day. In fact, people often thought about their doctors as saviors. Rulers were sometimes called saviors. Philosophers, because they kind of reoriented people's lives. But in fact, savior of the world, savior of the world was a title that was given to Caesar himself. And here we have someone competing with Caesar who is but a baby. He is called Christ. The title Christ, Savior becomes even more significant when it's tied to the word Christ because God 
often would send saviors for people. But here, God himself is come as the Savior. The word Lord, typically reserved for deity, is now being used on this little baby. Would the prophecies of Isaiah rung in the ears of those shepherds? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I don't know about you, but the older we get, the more tired we get. And the harder it is to find the motivation to accomplish some of the goals that we have set out for ourselves, it's because we, we, we lack this zeal, we, we lack the energy to be able to carry it forward. The month of December with all its activities kind of tires us all out. I'm beginning to come to a point in my life where I realize that God gives children when you're young. And the older we get, the less drive we have, and it's because our zeal falters. But how about God? Does His zeal falter? Does God ever get tired? No. His zeal never falters. Isaiah 40 verse 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? That the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. And it is the Lord's passion to redeem the weak. It is God's passion to redeem the vulnerable. He is intense upon bringing grace to the humble. He will unseat the proud time after time in order to make provision for those who are weak and who will humble themselves and recognize that He is the Creator God who has, has never changed. It's appropriate that God would use such foolish things of the world to condemn the proud. And when we look at that baby, what we are also seeing is the condemnation of the proud and the exaltation of the humble. There is a last scene here in this text, and I would call it an awkward visit for a new mom. How many new moms want a couple of random dudes showing up at the hospital? Just as you're trying to figure out this whole baby thing. Well, the shepherds, they're obedient. You got to give a hand to them. They're obedient. They go, and they find the baby just as the angel had said. And in telling Mary the vision of everything that they had seen, we have the record of that event in our hands. Because it says, she treasured up all these things and pondered them in their hearts. I think that we can draw from this that 
presenting truth to other people can be a very awkward experience. Especially when, I mean, today everyone has their truth. Yet Christ is to be communicated without shame by humble people. Do you know what keeps us from proclaiming to others the good news? Largely, it comes because pride keeps us from telling others about the good news. But this is the language of heaven. It's the language that Mary knew by heart. It's what she sang about, that God dethrones the proud, but then exalts the humble. And God uses humble people like shepherds to tell others about the news of heaven. Yes, a friendly audience, to be sure, going and meeting Mary and providing to her the news, but then they went out into the countryside telling everyone else, like random people, about this one that was born in the manger. It was good news of great joy, which would be for all people. See, the birth of Jesus Christ tells us that God gives grace to the humble. We need to be humble people to take the message of the good news to others around us. In a day, as I said, when everyone has their truth, we need to, with humility, tell them about the truth. Shepherds, the new mother, the inn, all these demonstrate overwhelmingly the generosity of God. We don't go to infringe upon other people, but we go to share with them the generosity of our God and Father who gave us Himself. It is perhaps a little bit too familiar to us, the words of John 3.16, but we are told to go and tell others, why not tell them the truth? That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is really good news. You know, if your world has been upset by the rulers of this world, then as I said, I want to invite you to turn your eyes to Jesus because the rulers of this world are proud, but the ruler of the universe is humble. Learning the language of heaven in the birth of Jesus Christ can be a very humbling thing. It's a lot like learning a new language. You've got to humble yourself and learn the first letters. You have to humble yourself and repeat after me. Parlez-vous français? Do you speak the language of heaven? Father, I have sinned, and I need your Son as my Savior. Father, please forgive me. 
I would understand if you wouldn't, but would you please forgive me? Lord, accept the death of your son as my very own death. And Lord, you, you promise that if I am humble, that you will save me. Like that thief on the cross, I might today be with you in paradise. Lord, would you give me peace? That's the language of heaven. It's simple. But every one of us needs to be able to recite it naturally from the heart. On Christmas Day, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote the words to a song that we'll, we'll close our service with. He wrote the, the words out of grief because his oldest son, he had been trying to keep him from going to serve in the Union Army. And at last, his son said, I can't stay home any longer. I've got to go. And he went. And his son was severely injured in the Battle of Mine Run in Virginia. And I want you to hear the last two stanzas of the poem as they do reflect the language of heaven. Longfellow said this, he said, And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Civil war, unrest. We're living in a land in a day when there is much unrest in people's hearts and minds. And when the Lord brings down the mighty from the throne and he does things that disquiets our hearts, look out, because he's about ready to exalt those of humble estate. Would you potentially be one of those whom the Lord exalts and to give you the language of heaven? The last stanza says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail and right prevail when peace on earth, goodwill towards men. God is not dead, and he doesn't sleep. He does not grow weary, we heard. Why? Because he has a passion to redeem humble men. He wants your weakness. He wants your exhaustion. He wants your anxiety. He wants you as downtrodden, harassed, objectified. He wants you because He loves you. And the birth of Jesus Christ tells us that God gives grace to the humble. What a precious promise. And may you be able to recite the language of heaven.
Let's pray.